I did mushrooms and watched Moana yesterday, <laughs> so I am uh, coming into this episode in a very weird headspace. First of all, The Rock is the pinnacle of human achievement. Agreed. Our species could not produce a more perfect human being. Like, evolution, the universe, God, whatever you believe, could have a hundred million more tries and not get another Dwayne Johnson. Wars should be fought, not just to protect him, but in his honor. Just from an animalistic, biological survival of the species level, millions, if not billions of us needless commons should be slaughtered if it meant that The Rock would want for nothing. And I don't know if that's really what Moana was about, but th that was my takeaway from it. Nick, what can I say except thank you? <laughs> Wonderful intro. <laughs> this coming from a man who used to have a bit about how if Dwayne the Rock Johnson was a supervillain, we'd all be fucked. Yes. <laughs> Do you not realize the dangers of having someone like him and put him in power? I know everybody wants to clamor and put him in a position of a god of oh, somebody who we should worship and look after i say nay that is the that is the exact person you should be most fearful of <laughs> i'm saying if the devil comes back he, he he would endear himself no different than dwayne the rock johnson has so far so we are o only merely at the midway point of dwayne rock johnson story let's see how it all turns out before we start uh proclaiming him th this golden god that we should serve ourselves to he did book himself to become president on his television show. <laughs> and from here on out, guys, if you could please use his correct name of Flex Kavana, I'd really appreciate yes. it. He would appreciate it. Hello, and welcome to Ten Bell Pod. I'm Nick, and I watched nine seasons of Love Island UK to prep for this episode. <laughs> I am joined by the Duke of Raleigh, Tyler Wood at Nick. Oh, 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 Mr. Nick Alexander, you invite <laughs> me on your podcast. Oh, look at you, my old brother. And we are, of course, joined <laughs> by the king of the tent folk, conqueror of campsites, Sir Jacob Manning of Scoutington. I like how you made me Scottish, who are directly <laughs> opposed to the British, because I feel like that's how I am against my British girlfriend. We are directly opposed against each other, and I'm, I want to bring her back in just to hear that uh, British voice you just did, Tyler, um, just so that way she can smack me in the face, and then I can smack you in the face <laughs> next time I see you. Yeah. If this is any indication how this podcast is going to go, I'm going to tell my girlfriend to skip this one. Not that she ever, li not that she ever listens to anything I ever do anyways, but uh, this will be the most un-British attempt at everything we've ever done. So, Guys, I had beans for breakfast, so I am... Did you have bangers and mash? Banger, all of it. Yeah, fish and chips, whatnot. Look, my 23andMe came back 50% Irish-British, 5% Lebanese, and 0.5% Congolese, if you smell what I'm cooking. So by the laws of the land, I am allowed to do these accents. 
well, I 23andMe says I'm 100% German. That's why I've invaded my girlfriend's space and moved <laughs> in with her. Uh, just took it over as if my own. But we have a very wonderful relationship, and I respect the fact that she is the queen. And I am her Prince Paramount Philip. Basically, I live here, but I have no legal right to anything. And people have a lot of questions on whether or not I'm alive or not. All right. So <laughs> this, is, this is already a real weird episode. Today. We are talking about perhaps the greatest wrestling product of the United Kingdom of all time. Yes, I know Nick Aldis and Zack Sabre. I have the wrestling channel and they're good too, but we're not talking about them. We are talking about one half of quite possibly one of the greatest tag teams of all time. One of the biggest stars of the 80s and 90s, the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith. Biggest is not an understatement. This man was fucking jacked. <laughs> In the words of George South, he was swallowed up like a big tick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when you hear when you hear that, if you're a wrestling fan, the first thing that comes to mind is the British Bulldog. Like immediately, no questions. I, I think most wrestling fans don't even know the name of that song or what that's for or why they play it in, in England. Matter of fact, I don't. I don't. I have no clue. <laughs> Much like most wrestling fans. But yeah, when you think about the the country of, of the UK and England and Britain, David Boy Smith is one of the first to come to mind. I'm Googling what the name of that song is because I wanted to answer Jake's questions. But I think uh, it's called Great Britannia or something like that. No, that's the fucking... Uh, dictionary. Nick, what the fuck's wrong with it's you? the British Bulldogs entrance <laughs> music, guys. Yeah, I mean, like, that's what I know it is. Done. Done. That's what it is. All right, then. So, David Smith was born November 27th, 1962 in Goulburn, Lincolnshire, England. Davey grew up a big wrestling fan, loving guys like Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. As a lifelong fan, Davey started looking for an entry point into the business, and at 12 years old, he would start doing some training with Ted Bentley, and by 15, he'd do his first match on ITV's World of Sport, and ITV is who makes Love Island, so just decades of quality programming. It's really crazy how early some of those British guys got started. Like, it is straight up like, they got in one fight after school, and they're like, oh, I guess I'm going to be a bare-knuckle boxer slash <laughs> catch-as-catch-can wrestler now. And goddamn. It's like him, William Regal, Dave Taylor, Fit Finley. Those are some of the toughest men. And like many other wrestlers, they scare the shit out of me. Well, what, what do you want? The, these kids are getting in fights after school. What do you want to do with all that testosterone? Do you want them just, like, roam the streets and interact with people? Or would you like them to go into a room beat the shit out of each other from ages 12 to 16. Maybe they'll learn some humility. Maybe they'll realize that like, hey, I could lose a fight at any moment in time. Maybe I'm not as tough as I thought I was. Maybe if I want to be tougher, I have to work hard. Goal setting, boundaries, understanding your own skills, a myriad of different things. What I'm saying is just take all your young boys and throw them in a room and let them fight each other. And whoever comes out, they may have come out as strong as Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Putting us around 1977-ish, Davey would often team up with his cousin Tom Billington, a.k.a. The Dynamite Kid. There's going to be a good bit of overlap here from our Dynamite Kid episode way back in 2019, 
it's honestly the first episode we ever did where we were kind of all like, oh, this is what Tim Bell Pod is. And every episode before that's only still up because Jake won't let me delete them. Either way, if you want the other half of the British Bulldog experience, go find that. In fact, this was the first time I got to use our own episode as research for a new episode, so we have come full fucking circle. By 79, Davey had made his way into the title scene, picking up the British Welterweight Championship, and we all know Davey from being a walking bicep muscle, but he's in the welterweight division here because he's still but a skinny, lanky lad. I mean, he was a, he was a little guy, and it's just absurd to see the transition. Yeah, he looks like one of those kids at high school that are like, well, we could play tight end, like, we'll just put him over here, but he seems very clumsy. I will throw the ball at him. He's not going to catch a thing, but he he's good for blocking when we run. Like that's what like I don't know why I have a very specific thing because I'm not describing a person in high school, but that's what like Davy always looked like very early in his career. Yeah, it was uh, while working in England that uh, Davy and Dynamite would run into Bruce Hart while he was over the pond doing some scouting, and he convinced Dynamite and later Davy to join him in Soviet Canada. Dynamite's about three or four years older than Davey, so that's why he went over to uh, Stampede in 78. I'd assume they had to wait for Davey to finish school and like become the legal age before he went over to Canada too, but he gets there about May of 81. Was Bruce the one that like kind of owned the school that Jericho trained at, or was that a different one? I mean, let Bruce tell you. He'll tell you that he trained everybody, <laughs> including The Rock, and never been proven wrong whatsoever. But yeah, I think I think Bruce would have been the guy. Like I've seen video of like Bruce running a school out of the dungeon because it was a way for him to capitalize off the fame of the Stampede name. So that's seems why there was a school. <laughs> Bruce is very much that type of person. At the same, but at the same time too, creative could spot talent. You know, he spotted Dynamite, spotted Davy, said, "Hey, these are the guys we need to build our territory around." So. As much as I'm talking shit about Bruce, he was the guy that found these amazing wrestlers and saw them before anybody saw anything in them. So, kudos to him. And that kind of leads me into my next point. Stampede is where both Davy and Dynamite, they get really, really, really good because they get to train in the Heart Dungeon and they get to work with that roster that the Hearts put together. And if you are trying to put together like a top 10, top 20, all-time like in-ring performer list, there's no way you can get through it without like three to seven Stampede guys. And some of the matches that you can find online still, like there's a 10 minute clip of Bret Hart versus Davy Boy Smith in Stampede, like way before yeah. they got signed to anything else. And they are incredibly over. The, the crowd is hot the entire fucking time. And there can't be more than a couple of people in this room, but they are just on fire all the way through. Well, and also, too, Calgary is not that big of a city, especially at the time that, you know, Stampede's heyday was, and, you know, they took the wrestling very seriously, so, like, this was their wrestling, much in what we've discussed over Memphis episodes with Brian Christopher and how over he was, it's kind of in the same aspect, too, like, you know, Stu Hart's the heart name really meant something because of Stu and what he had done in the territory and the brothers had done before. And now you have Brett coming over and he's having these great matches with Davey and Dynamite and they're kind of anointed like a part of the family and the crew and, and all of that. 
it's very similar in that aspect that a, kind of a smaller city, like they take a lot of pride in certain things. Much in the same sense, like a small city takes pride in a minor league baseball team or a minor league hockey team if they're really good. And obviously Stampede Wrestling was really good and that's what people in Calgary really took a lot of pride in. And that's why it's always been a great wrestling city. So you're comparing, you're comparing Calgary and Stampede Wrestling to basically the the Carolina Mudcats. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yes. Oh, actually, I was more really thinking of the Greenville Swamp Rabbits or oh. the Bog Bunnies, however you want to refer to it. But yeah, like you kind of wrap your, your arms around, around those things. Like the smaller cities, you take more pride. Look, I love the, the Clinton Lumber Kings growing up, like, or the Quad City Thunder. Like, I had to take a lot of pride in them. Heck, that's why I like the Iowa Hawkeyes, because they were the only football team around. So... For these people, this was the only wrestling around, so you took a lot of pride in it. This was their wrestling. It just so happened to be some of the best wrestling in the world. They didn't know that, but they knew it when they saw it. It was also in Stampede that Dynamite, who had gotten shit for being too small himself, introduced Davey to steroids. Both guys were hovering around like 140, 160 when they came over, but by his prime, Davey was 260 pounds. Or about 118 kilograms if you're tuning in from a place that decided to use units of measurement that ain't freedom. Uh, how many stones is he? How many stones is he? <laughs> he got plenty stoned later, Jake. That was, that's <laughs> a whole different deal. Yeah, 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 that's what I meant. How, how, how stoned is he now? <laughs> how stoned is he? That's what I want to know. I mean, if, if Nick's going to take, take all the mushrooms and not share with anybody and then watch movies... <laughs> Fuck you! I just watch NBA basketball all day long. Don't you think I would have? Don't you think I would have liked to take hallucinogenics and watch Kevin Durant? Like <laughs> that would be insane, actually. <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of a good point. Like, if Davy's story is at all in line with Tom's, this is probably also the point where he gets into that partying lifestyle and all the vices that come with it. Well, you kind of had to. You know, that stampede territory, like, it was nuts. You were putting your life on the line just making towns because you were traveling in the cold, in the winter, in the snow, in shitty road conditions, leaving last minute because the wrestlers and they don't leave on time and they're running late. Like, you were just taking your life in your own hands. And then after you get back from a loop, you're just lucky to be alive. So what do you do after a near-death experience? Have a glass of milk and a rotisserie chicken like Bruno <laughs> San Martino? Or do you just get super fucking high and then do all again the next day? Dude, it doesn't even take that for me. I, if I have a, a bad walk one day, I'm like, oh, I better get high as fuck tonight. <laughs> Don't know how I'm going to deal with this. So starting out in Stampede, they split the Brits up with the two having a little feud against each other and... These were always show-stealer matches. They'd have tons of one-on-ones. They'd have tag matches with various partners, including the Hearts, and a very, very young Brett, who had been wrestling like two-ish years at this point. It's weird to see, too. Like, I touched on the match that I saw with him and Brett. Brett was working as a heel in this. And uh, I know he did, like, for a little bit of his run in the WWF. I, I never thought he would have worked heel in Stampede. Just thinking like it's his dad's promotion, I figured it would be... He just seems like the pinnacle, or close to the pinnacle, of a, a baby face. And it's kind of weird to see him working as a heel here. November 2nd of 81, Davey would get his hands on his first Stampede title when he defeated the Great Gamma for the Stampede British Commonwealth mid-heavyweight title. So, I don't know if y'all motherfuckers heard about imperialism, but... 
England used to go to other people's houses and say, this is mine now. So even though Canada did gain its independence in 1982 when Celine Dion defeated Queen Elizabeth II in battle, it technically still remains part of the Commonwealth. So that's what that belt means. <laughs> well, and, and, and the part of my wrestling nerddom wants to be like, well, actually, they made the specific titles for Dynamite since he was so small. They were trying to create a belt that meant something <laughs> and instead of giving him the heavyweight title. Sir, it was actually the intercontinental title of the Calgary ta- Territory. It was the Workhorses Championship belt. But I'm not going to do that. So I'll let you have your stupid fucking joke. <laughs> so either way, it looks like they may have like dusty finished the whole thing or it was one of those pop this specific crowd. The internet isn't real yet and no one will know because Gamma has the belt like four days later and I can't find a loss for Davey. So... I, I don't know what happened there. Maybe they just didn't keep records of that shit. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know like, have ever, ever thought about that? Like, Nicholas is like, these cage match uh, <laughs> .net results just don't, they don't fit. They don't, where's this other match at? I don't know. Maybe they didn't post the results of the Saskatoon fucking show <laughs> they had. In 82, Davey is getting a little more involved with the rest of the Stampede roster. He's having matches against Cuban Assassin, Danny Davis, Bat News Allen. And he would actually win and get to keep the Stampede mid-heavyweight title when he beat Dynamite for it July 9th. And Davey held the belt until November 12th when the Great Gama took it. So I never noticed this in all the years of watching Davey wrestle. But Bad News pointed out that he had this bad habit of when he was selling, he would adjust his pants or his knee pads or whatever. And now it's all I can see every single match. Yep, he always was fucking with his gear. Every time he was on the laying on the mat, instead of him selling, he's fucking with his gear. <laughs> I agree. Like, that's the first thing I see of every time I fucking watch any one of his matches. In 83, Davey tried and tried to get the belt back from Gama. He lost a North American title shot to Brett. And he'd have a fun little run facing Leo Burke, who keeps popping up this season. Because he's a fucking man, that's why, and I hope, he bo- I hope he pops up just randomly in everybody's episodes, if you ask me. I'm surprised he didn't pop up in the Jimmy Rave episode, and me get into a dovetail of how amazing Leo Burke is. Just like Scott Casey. Don't think I forgot about <laughs> Scott Casey. 83 would also be the year that Davey started taking some Japan dates with New Japan, which is uh, yet another massive step for Davey, as well as Dynamite, as far as, you know, ring skill, credibility, popularity. And there's kind of uh, a few different versions of the British Bulldog. You know, there's my version, who is the Jack to the Gills, early 90s, white girl spring break braids, Davey, who's still an excellent wrestler. There's Puffy, HGH, WCW, Davey, that's not, you know, not the best. And there's Comeback, Attitude Era, Davey, with the jeans, who, you know, still has a little something in the tank, but he's going through some shit. But 80s Davey was him, as the kids say these days. We talk about Dynamite being one of, if not the best in-ring performer of all time. Davey's not like that, that, that far behind him here. Yeah, he was absolutely incredible. Like everything that Dynamite could do, Davey could do equally as good. But then there's this whole other dynamic. As Davey got bigger, he was able to transition into more of a muscle power guy, which was very similar to, you know, a lot of the guys at the time. But he still was able to keep a lot of that agility 
like a lot of the chain wrestling that he was able to do and the springboards off the ropes that you'd see Owen do as well, cartwheels and, and numerous other things. Now, there's certain iterations of Davey where he was just too jacked to do any of that, but he did have these amazing runs of, you know, middleweight championship runs and then also an era of time where he was body slamming Vader. Like <laughs> He kind of had the best of both worlds and the times where his weight was very much in line with his agility, you're seeing a level of performer that you haven't really seen until like the last decade or so. David would wrap up 83 in Canada before leaving the godforsaken hellscape that is a Canadian winter for a nice little tour of Japan to kick off 84. And for this run, Davey's involved in the junior heavyweight tournament. He's working with and against people like Black Tiger, Anoki, Fujinami, and the Cobra. 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 <laughs> Cobra. I just, just always think about Dynamite. Dynamite had a picture of him, Davey, and I think like Cobra's in the background because he just wrestled Cobra. And, and Dynamite's got like the junior heavyweight belt holding in a pie. Uh, I was like one of the few wrestling pictures is in, in his entire house that I was just remembering going, Cobra, yeah, Cobra. <laughs> Davey was back in the land of thick thighs and gravy fries by mid-February, <laughs> and not too much later, he joined forces with Dynamite, forming a tag team and winning a tournament for the vacant Stampede International Tag Team titles when they offed Bat News and Cuban Assassin in the finals. Dynamite and Davey would hold off all challengers before returning to New Japan for another tour, July 84. And this is when it was kind of a good thing, kind of a bad thing. Obviously, the Bulldogs were, were getting major opportunities in Japan, and they were going over, learning a little bit more of the Japanese style, bringing it over to Calgary and kind of spicing things up. And then also to kind of an exchange with Calgary, you would have you know, like a young Japanese young boy, young lion coming over. Like a young Liger would be coming over, even I think even a young Tiger Mask and a multitude of different young wrestlers that end up being main eventers coming over as well, too. But then yeah, I always heard, yeah, I think Bruce talked about it, it was very tough booking the Bulldogs because they had a lot of loyalty to Japan. You know, they had loyalty to the hearts and they wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. But if they could go over to Japan and make, I don't know, $14,000 a week, uh, we'll go do that. Jesus Christ. Um, as opposed to driving in a van with three other guys to Regina. Like, they obviously, it was very tough for them to kind of, you know, do anything with them in the home territory. Because, like, hey, eventually they got to go on a tour, so we got to do something to get them out. They'll be hot when they come back. So, like, let's just, when they're here, run them into the ground, and then we know that they're going to go away for three months, they'll come back, and, and just work, work that way. But it was very frustrating for Calgary to keep any momentum with them in the territory, because they were gone, and obviously, as I said, just trying to get that money in Japan. And that second tour in 84 from New Japan, that's their final one before they switched to All Japan, and there is a fan cam clip on youtube of their final entrance in new japan and it's kind of cool to just have like some type of video footage accessible to everybody that puts a button on an era of someone's career like that very short little two minute clip nothing really happens but cool to have that little little marker there so obviously they were making great money with, with new japan but giant baba was just he was always looking to steal 
talent from from New Japan. And I think even vice versa, there was a little bit of that going back and forth. I mean, it was just. I don't know if it was Yakuza money like, or what, or what, or Yakuza money, or as they call it, but there, there was just a lot of jumps back and forth. But I remember Davey and Tom talking about how they were kind of fearful of their life doing it. But obviously, the, the money that was put in front of them, they're like, sure, why not? I mean, we put our lives on the line driving to Edmonton in December, so we might as well, like, put our lives on the line by just going to another promotion that's got a different letter acronym. Sure, why not? But obviously they were huge stars in New Japan, but at the same time too, like how much bigger could they have gotten? What other options would have been? I mean, the idea of jumping back and forth and moving around, um, sometimes it's for the best, especially in that early part of your career. Don't stay in one place and get stale and move around. Even if your life is threatened uh, by, (laughs) by Japanese gangsters. Two severed pinkies way up on that one, Jake. Uh, <laughs> that That's something that really fascinates me when it comes to Japanese professional wrestling, not just the storytelling differences between that and American wrestling, but how involved, allegedly, the Yakuza has been over the years and just how much they seem to... Obviously, they're doing it because of the money and there are, you know, there are kickbacks here and there. There's behind the scenes, under the table money, but, like, they also enjoyed it. I think... Th- yeah, I think they also own the buildings, I think was uh, the big thing. From what I understand, I, I remember somebody mentioning that it was because it was they, they owned the buildings or had stake in the buildings. And obviously, a good way to launder money is live events. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, gangsters were always getting behind plays in America. And a matter of fact, gangsters tried to get involved with professional wrestling in America. But then they're like, these wrestlers are so <laughs> stupid and crazy. We can't fucking deal with them. <laughs> Like, gangsters wanted nothing to do with, with professional wrestlers because they're stupid. So, yeah, they made the jump over to All Japan in time for the 84 Real World Tag Tournament. And they're working with some pretty fancy names here. Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr., Tenaru and Saruta, Harley Race and Nick Bockwinkle, and Bruiser Brody with Stan Hansen. 84 would also be the year that Davey marries Brett's sister, Diana Hart. Following the real world tag tournament, the guys would just kind of stay in Japan through early 85, just, you know, getting more money than Canada and wrestling guys like Kawada and Tiger Mask. Back in Canada around this time, though, Stu had sold the territory to Satan himself, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, leading to one of the various closings, openings, closings, openings, closing openings of uh, Stampede Wrestling. So the Bulldogs have so much heat behind them. They have the buzz from jumping from New Japan to All Japan and not being murdered. They have great matches with all those big names I just mentioned. And now they're headed to WWF with Brett, with Jim Neidhart as part of that stampede deal. And they're going to be starting out there in March of 85. And this is a WWF that is about to light the wrestling world on fire behind Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania. So it's uh, looking pretty good for the Bulldogs. And I think there was even talks with the Bulldogs. They're like, well, what if we don't want to go? What if we just want to just wrestle in Japan all the time? Because they just made that jump. They just like, hey, we made this big career jump. Why don't we just stay here? But that was kind of part of the negotiations with Stu. It was like, uh, the, uh, the, uh, my territory. But I need, to, I need to take care of the rhino. I need to take care of my boy. 
I know my boy. Uh, you, he makes a good cowboy. Trust me. He's, a, he's not a good hitman. He'd be a terrible hitman. A wonderful cowboy. And then I got the dogs. Dogs. Like, I'm more of a cat guy. I like cats. I, re- I like to I like to sit in my sit in my couch and pet the cats. He's watch over them. And uh, granted, my my bastard son over here, Bruce. He's gonna he's gonna restart the territory 18 times and behind your back. And it's okay. It's okay. You you get the other son. It's okay. It's okay. He's take care of them. He's take care take take care of the four. Some of them my boys. Some of some of my boys in law. He's just take care of them. Come here. Let me let me let me get a hold of you. Let me get a hold. Come on, man. Just come down to my basement. I'm, I'm giving you my territory. I'm giving you Canada. I'm, gi- I'm giving you my, my sons and sons and all. Just come down to my basement. Come on. Let me do some things against your will. Come on. Come on. You like that shit, don't you? You like that shit. Come on. Come on. You like, you like being forced into doing something you don't want to do. Oh, you like the other way around? Fair enough. I'll sign on the dotted line. Hey, congratulations. 35 minutes before we got the, the Stu Hart impression. I was wondering how long it's that. I would have lost. I would have taken the under. While Hulk's popularity and Vince's megalomania were taking WWF to new levels outside of the ring, it was the Brit-born, Canadian-grown Davian Dynamite that played a huge role in revolutionizing what mainstream pro wrestling in America looked like. At this point, for the most part, WWWF and WWF had been, you know, big, bruising, strong men having slow-paced matches. It was, you know, more rooted in amateur wrestling. They would have burned Ricochet for being a witch. Let's let's just say that. But Davey and Dynamite led the way for, like, a whole new generation that led away for the next generation, eventually taking us to today's, like, fast-paced you know, usually high-flying style where you don't have to be 615, 390 to just to have a spot on a wrestling roster. You can't undersell the impact that the Bulldogs had on just wrestling in general. I mean, obviously, like, Dynamite gets a lot of that love and a lot of that focus, but Davey was a part of that as well, especially on the mainstream stage. He was doing it too. He was doing all those high spots. And then you get them in the mix with the Hart Foundation once they finally figured out what to do with the Anvil. Once they finally figured out what to do with Brett and then put him against the Bulldogs and have them have amazing matches. Like they really push the art form forward, obviously as a tag team. But the, some of the single spots and the single matches they had were way ahead of their time. And for some of the things they were doing, like. It'd be very interesting if you take them out of wrestling history, what wrestling looks like, and does wrestling as an art form advance the way that it did, or even at all, to be quite honest. So hugely, hugely important to the history of professional wrestling, especially when it comes to the art form of professional wrestling. The Bulldogs wouldn't make the WrestleMania 1 card, but by early March of 85, they were off and running doing house shows and all-star wrestling tapings. And we've touched on this before, but the business model for WWF was way different around this time. You got your heat or started your feud or looked super cool and strong on TV just to set up the next 10 to 20 house shows, a rinse and repeat. And that's what Navy and Dynamite spent most, you know, all of 85 doing. You know, WrestleMania 1 had just happened, so they're not building to a big blow-off to SummerSlam. SummerSlam doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you're exactly right, Nicholas. Like, they were just coming off of WrestleMania 1 and there was no SummerSlam. But also, too, I don't even know if they knew what 
WrestleMania was supposed to be. They're like, we'll just put on a huge card. The idea of like building to a premium live event or pay-per-view like hasn't crossed their minds. It was all about the house shows, the idea of, oh, we can do these pay-per-view events and we can make a lot of money on these one particular shows in a television aspect or a pay-per-view aspect or streaming or however we're putting them out into the world like it's not crossing their mind the way that they're doing this is let's use tv to get as many people into a building and get the ticket money so like that idea is still very foreign at this time and that's basically their business model right now so the bulldogs had tons of matches against job teams they were Brett and Jim a lot, and they would start working more established WWF names like Iron Sheik and Volkov or Beefcake and Hammer. Through 85, the Bulldogs were also allowed to dip back over to All Japan for a couple of runs, but it was only a matter of time before Vince cut that shit out. Damn it, pal. You're going to make money for somebody else? You're going you're, you're gonna to make money for that big, dumb-looking giant, dude? I got a giant over here! You want to make some money? I got a giant right here! I can bring him right in. You gotta make some money for him. You gotta make some money. We gotta make some money here so I can pay him. I go go over to Japan and make money for him. Uh, you tell tell Mrs. Bob I said hello. You know how I say hello right here, buddy. Middle finger right here. That's how I say. That's what I say. We're done with that nonsense. We're done with that nonsense. Good day and pick up your bulldog on the way out the door. Okay, like are you you've been assigned a bulldog. All right, and tell tell Ricky to come on in here. I got a kimono dragon and a, and a cage for him. He's got to start carrying around to the house shows. I do like the idea that Vince is like, if one of my goddamn toys is going to break, it's going to be on one of my shows. Then I'll, <laughs> then I'll fire him. <laughs> Absolutely. Building towards WrestleMania 2, the Bulldogs had a long run against the tag champs, the Dream Team, Brutus, and Hammer. And that's who they'd meet on the Chicago leg of the premium live event. There, supported by fellow Englishman Ozzy Osbourne, the Bulldogs won the match and the WWF Tag Team titles. Do forgive me for asking this, since I wasn't around at the time. Ozzy's music didn't really fit them, did it? There's a different vibe to the British Bulldogs than Ozzy Osbourne and uh, his, his music. The Federation as a whole is, I think Cindy Lauper was more appropriate. Yeah. She's more poppy where, you know, Ozzy at the time was devil's music. So I guess it is kind of a weird fit for WWF around this time. Well, at the same time too, I'm sure Dynamite and Davey are jamming to Ozzy in the gym. Yeah. And on road trips. So like I feel like it is them. But I guarantee they weren't thinking about that when they were putting together it was just gorilla monsoon going they're all british put them together they're british get it they're british put them in a man and know what let's have them have a british bulldog with them named winston or matilda whoever whichever dog's alive right now which is very much beating it over your head which fun fact Every British person has owned a dog named Winston, that they've nicknamed Winnie. And then when that dog dies, they get a dog named uh, Reginald, which they call Reggie. And that dog has definitely worn a bow tie at some point in time. That is, that is fact. So the British Bulldogs have a nice little run with the titles here. They'll approach uh, about nine months, holding off people like Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy, the Dream Team rematches, Volkov and Shiki. 
as you know the wwf presence on national tv is starting to increase you know we're not quite to the pay-per-view every three weeks era but as wwf marches towards wrestlemania 3 their brand's expanding they're exposing everyone more including the bulldogs however december 13th 1986 at a house show in hamilton ontario disaster would strike the bulldogs Dynamite, on seemingly a routine spot, suffered a brutal back injury in a match with Bob Orton and Don Morocco. You can hear about it in more detail on Dynamite's episode, but just know, it ain't good. Davey, who is still one half of the tag team champs, he's kind of left hanging here, so WWF would sub in all kinds of random baby faces to help him defend the titles while uh, Dynamite was out. Davey tagged with JYD, Tito, Blackjack Mulligan, Roddy Piper, and they're pretty much always taking on the Hart Foundation. And this leads to the January 6, 1987 Superstars taping when Vince got a hold of Dynamite and was like, Hey, look, pal, I know you literally can't walk, but I'm gonna need you to drop those tag team titles. I mean, I can't fire you for being injured if you have my belt now, can I? So at the taping, Dynamite is basically like carried to the ring. He's attacked from behind, so he, he's, like, out the whole match. Davey tries to fight off the hearts for about three minutes. It's too much, and Brett and Jim take the belts off him. Well, see, was, was that so hard, pal? I gave, <laughs> I gave you a standing ovation when you came to the back. <laughs> uh, come on. That's worth something. I made everybody stand up and clap for your crippled ass. Come on. That surely feeds into his god complex, too, because he's like, look, this man couldn't walk. I made him walk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) So after about six weeks off for Dynamite and Davey, Davey got a little time off here, too. uh, The guys would be back for the build to WrestleMania 3, and this is when they get that new partner. The Bulldogs would start bringing a dog to the ring, but enough about my ex-wife. Hey! They would start bringing an actual bulldog, uh, Matilda. And as a wrestling journalist, Jake, I have to ask, who you got in a fight? Matilda, Damien, Coco Beware's Bird, or the Red Rooster? Red Rooster doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> uh, I definitely know the bulldogs injected Matilda with steroids because they thought that shit would be funny. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, <laughs> Did it help her bench at all, or was she still pretty? <laughs> I mean, did you see the lats on that bulldog? <laughs> all neck. <laughs> all neck. But Frankie's got, like, talons, but, like, I don't know. I don't know. That bird would feel like we just flap its big, dumb wings and <laughs> they think that's going to stop a roid-raging bulldog. Um, yeah, I'm going to take Matilda all day, every day. I would have gone with Damien up until you told me that they were injecting the dog with steroids. And I'm like, well, that's a bit more of an even fight. Mm-hmm. How much CTE does the dog have? <laughs> Some, at least. <laughs> at WrestleMania 3, Brett and Anvil with uh, Hill Ref Danny Davis, they were doing a whole thing with that angle. Uh, they beat the Bulldogs with Tito Santana. And then after scientists repaired the crack in the earth from Hulk Hogan slamming the 90-foot-ton giant in front of 34 billion people at the Pontiac Silverdome, brother, the Bulldogs and Hearts continued their feud, and they just had about a million TV and house shows matches. The Bulldogs would be part of the first-ever Survivor Series, teaming up with Strike Force, Killer Bees, the Rougeos, and Young Stallions to beat the Bat Guys, Demolition, Heart Foundation, Dream Team, and the Bolsheviks. And the Islanders. And the first two Survivor Series are just unfucking watchable. Uh, some of the most boring <laughs> wrestling ever. Do not watch it. 
Uh, I disagree, but the the tag the tag team Survivor Series one that's unwatchable yes. for sure. The other matches are perfectly fine, but every time they had those tag team ones and you couldn't do shit in the ring because there were so many people around the <laughs> ring and people were just like pinning each other in body slams because they're like, I can't throw you off the ropes because you're gonna hit your partner and have to tag <laughs> out. So yeah, the, and I think it goes like 42 minutes, yeah. and it's all called on the fly because it's that era, brother. Um, yeah, you could skip over the Tag Team Survivor Series, and Survivor Series is a bit more manageable. Hopping into 88, the Islanders with still Matilda leading to a feud to take us all the way to WrestleMania 4, where Bobby Heenan and the Islanders face the Bulldogs with Coco with the Hills wedding. And after Mania, it's more of the same, tons of house shows with the usual suspects. On August 29th, the Bulldogs were part of the first ever SummerSlam beating the Rougeau brothers, and they are a big part of the story here. So, the Bulldogs like to have a bit of a giggle and rib people backstage. While it started out just taking the piss, they uh, ramped up and a lot of their pranks started becoming, you know, a little more mean-spirited, destruction of property, or just, you know, fucking annoying. So, there's a million different versions of this story. But the Rougeos asked Mr. Perfect to watch their bags so that the Bulldogs would not cut up their clothes, which is a thing they did a lot. So Mr. Perfect, a ribber himself, cut up their clothes with an obvious out to like blame it on the Bulldogs. The Rougeos come back, they're pissed at the Bulldogs, they're talking shit. This gets back to Dynamite, who proceeds to uh, fuck up Jock in a uh, Donnybrook. Weeks later, at a taping... Jacques Rougeau gets revenge by sucker-punching Dynamite with a roll of quarters. Again, if you want to hear the whole story, uh, the whole Dynamite spiel, it's on his episode. With a roll of quarters, do you tape it around your, your fist? Or is it like, what's going on here? Are you doing a bit? No, I seriously don't know you how you fuck some... I, said- I, I know it's like, it's bad, but... You, you put, put it inside of your hand. What is that? That like doesn't make your bones any tougher. Your hand can't collapse with it. Oh, yes. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. So it's just hard. Exactly. I gotcha. All right. That's basically what it is. But yeah, it, it's chronicled on every YouTube video, Dark Side of the Ring. I mean, if you are listening to wrestling podcasts and you haven't heard the Dynamite Kid Jacques Rougeau fight, congratulations, you are a unicorn. <laughs> um, yeah, really, really bad part, but... As someone who dates a British person, they just don't know when to let it go. Like, they don't know when to, when enough is enough and just to back off and maybe you shouldn't fuck with this person anymore. They just, they just like pushing a little further, and that's exactly what the Bulldogs did. Between the fight, creative direction of the Bulldogs, you know, other backstage shit like money and uh, I think travel expenses, Dynamite, who was always kind of taking the lead in their career, would lead the exit of the British Bulldogs from the WWF following the uh, 88 Survivor Series. They were on the winning side of that 10-team elimination tournament. For the love of God, don't watch it. With Davey following Tom out of the company, it was back to one of the various remixes of Stampede Wrestling arriving back in Canada around December 88. And that's the thing, you're exactly right, The Dynamo was kind of like the lead in all of this. He's like, we're leaving the WWF, and Dave's like, oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I kind of like it here. Uh, our friend's here. Brett's here. Uh, Jim's here. 
okay. <laughs> and he just gave up everything and went with him. And I think a lot of people could tell that maybe like Davy was just following Dynamite around. And I think that's why um, you see Davy come back here very shortly. But we haven't got that yet. This could have been a really, really super cool time in Stampede, but they had like just missed that new roster. Owen was off to the WWF. Pillman was off to WCW by like months. They just missed it. A uh, very young and new. He who shall not be named was there. Mike Shaw was there, but the Bulldogs are like head and shoulders, the stars. Now internationally famous, maybe they could have helped Stampede survive a little longer, but in early 89, Davy and Dynamite were back over to All Japan where the money was just impossibly better. They would split time between the two companies throughout 89. Uh, Stampede just couldn't survive their top talent, either going to bigger companies in America or, you know, bouncing over to Japan every six weeks. On July 4th, 1989, Davy, Redacted, Ross Hart, and Jason the Terrible were involved in a very serious car accident. Davy was not wearing a seatbelt and he needed 135 stitches after slamming his head through the windshield and being thrown 25 feet onto the pavement. Davey misses about two months before showing back up in uh, Stampede as a singles competitor. Late 89, early 90, Davey was back over to All Japan, where he'd keep tagging with Dynamite, facing people like Ababa, Russia Kimura, Tenaru and Hansen, Can-Am Express. January 28th, 90, Davey and Dynamite would have their last match ever together. And if you know the Dynamite Kid story, you know at this point, at a way too young age, Dynamite's body is felling him. You know, he had his own battles with addiction. He had his own abuse of steroids. That WWF back injury just, you know, wrecked him. And then just the every match, absolute absurd bumps he would take, it, it caught up to him. So Davey, perhaps selfishly, had to start thinking about himself. His career, his longevity in the business, his money, his family, and he made a, a very tough choice. Davey no-showed a tag team tournament, told All Japan that Dynamite was in a car wreck and that was why uh, they had to cancel. Davey had actually made plans to return to the WWF, something Dynamite was 100% against, and to make it worse, he took and then trademarked the British Bulldog name causing a permanent divide between him and Dynamite. They never spoke again. And it's sad. It really is sad. It had to come to that. <sighs> like, up until probably trademarking the British Bulldog name, like, you're on board with Davey. But, like, at that point, now it's like, okay, now Dynamite can't use something that he's made money off of that he was clearly, I mean, kind of leading everybody through. Like, he was the leader of that group. He was the alpha. He was deciding what the British Bulldogs do, and Davey just took it from him. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe if he doesn't do that one step, like if he's just Davey Boy Smith, you know, maybe he can forgive Davey. But I, I think that was such a betrayal, and for somebody who had as much pride as Dynamite, I could see him never getting over that. Yeah. Now, I mean, Tom was always cool with Harry. Always had time for him, always talked to him. So I, I guess there is a little bit of guilt that they never patched things up before, you know, Davey died. So I, there is that. But, you know, maybe maybe they could have patched things up if, you know, that wouldn't have happened. But it's not like Davey ever reached out to Tom 
when he knew he was clearly in a wheelchair in, in the UK and they did multiple tours over there. Could have went over at any moment in time and, you know, slipped his friend some, a couple bucks or did something for him or just had a meal with him or a pint or whatever. But it just, whatever, whatever it was, it was enough for him to just scrape him completely off, which it seems I, I get, but it's a tough situation. And it's a shame it kind of ended that way for them. Davey shows back up in WWF October of 90, beating Brooklyn Brawler as the British Bulldog. Hair braided and on all the gas, Davey was ready for his big singles push. Yeah, I wonder why he's going to get pushed. God, he looks so good. So vascular. God damn, he looks vascular. He looks like a jacked up Bo Derek. You know, you take, you take how much I love oiled up vascular men and how much I love Bo Derek. You put that together and it's got an accent to it. Oh, yeah. While we're in 90, heading into 91, and there's a few more pay-per-views now, we're still on that house show business model. So it's more of the same as last time, but just as a singles competitor now. Face Davey is wrestling hills like Warlord, Haku, Dino Bravo. He's popping into a TV taping to beat up someone like a Chris Duffy or Iron Mike Sharp, both RIP. Davey would be part of 91's Royal Rumble, entering 14th, tossing three people, and lasting 37 minutes before Earthquake and Brian Knobs combo eliminated him. It was back on the road until Davey beat Warlord at WrestleMania 7. He'd get into a IC title house show feud with Perfect, and stop by 91's SummerSlam to team with Texas Tornado and Ricky Steamboat to beat Warlord, Paul Roma, and the very underrated Disney film, Hercules. And you know what? Davey versus Warlord, unbelievable matches. Like, really good fucking matches. Like, you'd think it's kind of lumbering because obviously Davey's, like, swollen up like a big tick. But, like, he's still kind of doing some of the things he's really did when he was much more agile. And there are some amazing, amazing matches. Far better than what you expect. Maybe because, like, the, the bar sets so low in your mind when you hear Warlord versus British Bulldog, but they're really good matches. Any one of them, I think they had a Coliseum video match, and then obviously the WrestleMania one. Like, yeah, pleasantly surprised at how good those matches were. After Brett, Roddy, Davey, and Face Virgil took an L to Flair, Million Dollar Man, Warlord, and the Mountie at Survivor Series 91, it looked like they were like kind of putting out little feelers for Davey maybe getting into the main event title scene. He started getting title shots at house shows against Undertaker. Davey would be part of his second Rumble match in 92, the one that uh, Flair won with a tear. It is I! And what truck on through 92, having house show runs with Flair, Taker, and Repo Man, 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 man. So I just touched on, you know, maybe he's going to get to the main event scene. Davey always did well for himself in Canada and the U.S. You know, he was over. He was well-liked, yada, yada, yada. But in the U.K., he was Hulk Hogan. So England had wrestling for decades. They had their own stars. They had people travel the world. But Davey was a superstar at the level of a no-U.K. wrestler before him. Meanwhile, in 92, WWF is going through a bit of a transition period from the old 80s stars trying to find out, you know, trying to find that next generation. Andre was too hurt to work full time. Hulk was in and out making movies. Macho was getting moved to commentary. Marty Jannetty. 
So houses, buy rates, and everything were really, really down. And Vince saw an opportunity with Davey to head over to the UK and make some of that colorful money with the queen on it, exchange it for US currency, and exchange that for hush money to cover up sexual misconduct. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, yes. Yeah. He, he did not, totally did not settle a sexual assault case out of court or anything. Not at all. Well, I, we don't know if he used 1992 SummerSlam money. That's why <laughs> That's I true. put the allegedly in. I, he definitely used money, but it, we don't know if, if 1992 SummerSlam money was gone towards hush money. So, like, let's, let's use allegedly as much as possible fair, in fair that point, era, okay? It's also interesting to see, too, that general business model of this foreign star we're, we're going to take them and push them and make them seem great so that that market will spend more money with us like it's happened as recently as like when was that 2016 17 when jinder mahal won the wwe championship again bro we want to do it here in august with jamie hater coming out in fucking wembley all right oh, that's like, true that's true <laughs> you think you think switchblade like all of a sudden coming part of our ranks don't you think that's gonna like tick up here very soon fair point so it's gonna be the summer of the switch so shut your fucking mouth tyler is what i'm saying <laughs> shut your fucking mouth you got nothing to say now huh it makes perfect sense i was a little are you saying that Switchblade is good for the Wembley thing? He's New Zealand, isn't he? Isn't he from New Zealand? I don't fucking know. He's got <laughs> That's why I got accent, quiet. Sure. I'm like, is it? He's from like Australia, isn't he? <laughs> I thought he was English. I'm almost 100 percent he's English. Okay. Let's let's see. Let's 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 take the time. Get your pen out to see if you need to edit this. But let let's keep this in just to let you know if you're right or you're wrong. Because uh, I do remember Luke Gallows talking about Switchblade. Because Switchblade was running his mouth about Bullet Club, and fucking Luke Gallows was like, that English boy needs to watch his mouth. So I, I just <laughs> thought he was English because of, he's New Japan. He is from he Auckland, is, New Zealand. He is from Auckland, New Zealand. So Luke Gallows is not correct. <laughs> Damn, I would have bet money, he, Luke Gallows. <laughs> <laughs> knows everybody's background so that's why i always thought he was english is because luke al is like that english boy needs to wash his mouth you tell of course some guy from south georgia who lives in south georgia got somebody's nationality yeah, you're wrong. gonna tell me sex ferguson doesn't understand geography <laughs> <laughs> yeah so vince and wwf had been testing the waters with tours of the uk and europe and they saw that the popularity was still very high overseas with it dipping in america and that's when he decided to move 92 SummerSlam over to England. And this speaks to how huge Davey was in the UK. For Vince to push all in, you know, with one of the big four on foreign soil, that's a lot of confidence in Davey. Speaking uh, of all in, how <laughs> apropos. <laughs> so SummerSlam 92 would be at Wembley Stadium in London, England. And uh, Vince's gamble paid off. With WrestleMania numbers, usually an outright lie, uh, WrestleMania 8 in 92, biggest show of the year every year, had over 62,000 people. SummerSlam 92 at Wembley Stadium would sell 60,000 tickets the, just the first week they went on sale, and the event would end up drawing 80,000, with the driving force behind the event being Davey taking on Bret Hart for the Intercontinental title, back when the IC title still meant something. And SummerSlam 92, you know, we always talk about, oh, it was a Wembley Stadium, and yeah, yeah, and we, and we just go right to Pontiac Silverdome, or the Dallas WrestleMania, or a multitude of other events, we, and we never think about the sheer size and mass of SummerSlam 92. 
I work for a company and we are preparing to sell merch in Wembley Stadium. And we are talking to a company that their main pitch to us is about assisting us with the merchandise is, well, we did Wembley when WWF came over. Oh, that's a detriment at this point. God damn, that's what, <laughs> 92, uh, 30 I, fucking years ago. Yeah, that, but that's their main thing. Well, we did back when WWF was here, and we have to be like, who the fuck else have you worked with wrestling-wise is like the question. <laughs> and, of course, they've done multiple other people's like Impact and other tours as, as well, too, but they just keep bringing up. Wembley 1992 as if it's the the greatest wrestling event that's ever <laughs> happened in the UK cuz it probably is to be really quite honest but it's that it's that large as you talk to people in the know as far as live events go in the UK it is monstrous to the point that somebody is bringing up as their calling card <laughs> like 30 years later to uh, just put the numbers into perspective, out of the top 10 most attended shows in WWE history, nine of them are WrestleManias. And then you have 92 SummerSlam up there still hovering around like fifth. The build to this match is uh, chaotic. Bulldog was getting pretty beat up as they headed towards summer. He broke his nose. He hurt his knee. So in hopes of, you know, keeping Davey healthy for SummerSlam, they took him off the road. And according to Brett... Davey would spend his time avoiding Brett's calls to hang out with Jim Neidhart and do crack cocaine. Crack cocaine, the official cocaine of Tim Bell Pod. Dude, Brett Hart, speaking about this match, is the most Brett Hart I have ever heard Brett Hart. <laughs> <laughs> Every opportunity he gets to tell you what somebody else did wrong and what he did right, he is all over it on this motherfucker. <laughs> From one Sean guy to another, Tyler. I couldn't agree more. Brett would finally get a hold of Davey in England the night before SummerSlam during entrance rehearsals. So shit. But basically, Brett sat Davey down, went over the match for what would be the biggest moment of Davey's career. So at SummerSlam, full of chips and vinegar, Davey was led to the ring by boxing champ and fellow countryman Lennox Lewis. For the battle of A versus Oi. <laughs> you have such talent that is just directed in odd places. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So during the match, Davey apparently blanked and forgot <laughs> everything that Brett laid out. You say so... apparently. Brett told us he did. <laughs> <laughs> so... yeah, there's no allegedly about it. It definitely happened. It's fact. <laughs> It is fact, because Bret Hart said so. Not to put himself over, but that would lead to <laughs> Bret calling the match, the last 20 minutes of the match himself, in ring. And by God, this is a fantastic fucking match. Bret takes everything from Davey, including a power slam, a superplex, but he loses when Davey catches him in a pin to win the Intercontinental Championship. And a, a final quote from the A&E documentary on this, uh, from Mr. Bret Hart. Losing isn't always a bad thing. If it's done in a dramatic way, an honest way, and an emotional way, it'll make me a bigger star. <laughs> uh, Bret never change. I don't think he can. <laughs> but the rise to the top and the celebration of the British Bulldog, it wouldn't last very long. So now I see champ. Davey defended it on the house show loop. He stopped off to beat Luis Piccoli on Wrestling Challenge. And then he dropped the belt November 14th on Saturday night's main event to the Heartbreak Kid. 
And that brings us to WWF release number one. So Davies' Soma abuse had most likely kept him out of the world title scene, but that's not why he gets fired here. Around this time, we're ramping up to the steroid trial, and as Tyler knows, in 91, a WWF ringside doctor by the name of Dr. Sorian was convicted of illegally supplying anabolic steroids. So, eyes were on WWF, and as Davey had already been suspended once for failing a piss test, eyes were on him. By now, Vince had closed his bodybuilding fed. He's starting to examine the roster and, you know, trying to shake the Federales. And since Davey and Ultimate Warrior were allegedly receiving HGH from an England pharmacy, they were both fired in November. Now, you said he closed his fed, but not his fet, right? He still fucking loves bodybuilders <laughs> in that way, right? Still still on the fet life, yeah. Yeah, he's the, his fet life of just muscular men and, uh, like, face-sitting and... <laughs> Poop. Whatever other fetishes that were not in my tags for fet life. Uh, sure, yeah, he's definitely above that. After taking a little bit of vacay, Davey popped up in ECW, which was still Eastern Championship Wrestling at the time. He would beat uh, Jimmy Snuka. He would also, uh, about a month later, beat Mass Superstar. About three weeks after that, it was off to WCW. In February 1993, Davey debuted on TV, defeating Rex Cooper on an episode of Worldwide. And then it was like straight into Super Brawl 3, where he beat Bill Irwin. And from here, it's just mowing down enhancement talent to get over with the WCW crowd before he heads over for another All Japan tour. This is the good WCW run for Davey. He looks great. He can still wrestle his ass off. He has star power. So it's straight to the main event scene. Davey would headline Slamboree 93, getting a DQ win over world champion Vader. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty fun match. Davey looks strong as hell. In July of 93, Davey tagged up with Sting to feud with the masters of the powerbomb, Sid and Vader, having their first match together on the July 7th Worldwide against Bobby Eaton and Redacted. To promote their Beach Blast 93 match, we get that ridiculous exploding boat promo short film, whatever you want to call it. Seven Uh, minutes. (laughs) It's seven fucking minutes. I never want to hear another thing about the way that wrestlers watch a TV backstage ruining the immersion of people watching wrestling. This was insane. The camera cuts were nauseating there was a little person dressed up as a shark uh jake can you give me some context on who that was and why that was going on probably just somebody like uh we need a little person uh let's open up a book of little person actors there we go okay gotcha i didn't know if if they were a uh oh no they had actual like uh from what i understand actual movie people putting this together this wasn't like (laughs) like wrestlers producing movie they had like actual movie people put this together that they they had people that worked in entertainment and this is what they came up with. well because that's what they that's what they think pro wrestlers are they're like oh well, we can just do these crazy little things they're not wrong but it still wasn't done right like there's a there's a middle ground for it storming the beach with a world war ii i don't even know what you call those boats but just pulling up to the beach letting the thing down and then coming out to stare at each other Saving Private Ryan boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like whatever ones they used to storm yeah. Normandy. Uh, I bet there are many ghosts of World War II 
veterans looking down while this was going on, having traveled in that very boat, like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here? They come out, they challenge them to a match. It's going to go down at Beach Blast, and they challenge them. It's on a beach. It's in front of these terrible child actors, and there's all this hype. They're like, oh, my God. What are you guys going to do? Oh, oh. And then they go, yep, you're on. And then they like go back to playing volleyball for a minute. Then you have these two small girls, not trained actors at all. I'm sure the, the daughters of somebody on the, the production team just trying their best to get out the line that there's some, some weird guy was messing with the boat. Sting's boat. Sting goes to check it out. Davy Boy comes over, gets the same muddled message. Somebody was messing with the boat. We cut over. Sting's holding a fucking bomb. <laughs> because that's what frustrated me more than anything is that you're so mad you're going to try to fucking kill someone by by <laughs> putting some bomb in, like they're mafiosos like as soon as the boat starts they're going to explode but they've just agreed to a match like y- you're on but actually I'm still going to try to fucking murder you <laughs> so thank you for, for pointing that out that was fun to watch <laughs> I really wish this was an actual angle and it went wrong, just so Dutch Mantel could do the narration of Dark Side of the Ring. <laughs> and a backstage stunt going wrong. Sting found a time bomb. <laughs> oh, Christ. All right, so at the uh, actual Beach Blast pay-per-view, which was July 18th, 93, Sting and Davey beat Vader and Sid in the main event, and Davey, doing a crucifix roll-up, pins world champion Vader. So, you know, they're making him look uh, pretty good here. Again, it looks like Davey's getting the rocket put on him. He's going to grab the world title and transition from massive superstar to living icon. But then... uh. Something goes wrong again. July 93, Smith beat up a guy for flirting with his wife at a bar, and Davey straight put him in a coma. While Davey did wrestle for a few more months, including Davey Sting, Dustin, and Shockmaster beating Harlem Heat, Sid, Vader, in a War Games match at Fall Brawl 93, Halloween Havoc lost to Regal, apparently the legal shitstorm from the fight with Davey's, you know, party and ways, Led to Davey getting the boot from WCW, also in November. After his release, Davey finished up 93 on a few American indies before spending a good bit of 94 in England's Ring Wrestling Stars, a uh, Del Martin promotion. By 94, Davey had resurfaced in the WWF, appearing in the crowd at SummerSlam for the still cage match between Owen and Brett while that feud was in uh, full swing. And I, I fucking hate this shit. When wrestlers just walk into a crowd and think they can be a fan, no experience, never been in a wrestling crowd, but you think you just sit in a fucking chair and do what we do? You, you think it's that easy? We don't come down to where you work and sit in a fucking chair. You know, Nick, I don't want to say anything here because I feel like it's a little disrespectful, but I heard he was even wearing deodorant. Like, that's how much he wasn't taking this seriously. <laughs> you actually do, you come sit down where, we, where our job is, actually, is, I think, the fun part of the whole joke. Like, we should, we should acknowledge the clever writing, unless you did that accidentally. Which, <laughs> no, no, I did it on purpose. I, I was making sure you, I, wanted, I wanted the audience to understand, because I think there's some audience members that think you arrived to the end of that joke accidentally. But no, that was cleverly done and should be acknowledged. Thank you. 
Alright, so with the family divided, Davy had to pick a side. Two Christmases. And uh, he rolled with Brett as they took on the bad guy side of Owen and Jim Neidhart. By now, Monday Night Raw was a thing. And Davy got his first experience getting a DQ win over the Anvil, September 26, 94. He'd get TV wins on Raw, uh, Superstars, and Wrestling Challenge. And Brett and Davey beat Jim and Owen on Raw November 7th, 94. Bulldog was back at Survivor Series that year, teaming up with the bad guys who were actually the good guys, uh, Razor, Barbarian, Fatu, with 1-2-3-Kid. And they would beat the actual bad guys, Diesel, Double J, Jim, Owen, and HBK. Then in uh, 95, we get to one of my favorite and one of the most memorable Royal Rumble finishes ever. Davey and Sean get down to the final two. Davey seemingly tossed HBK over the top. He went to celebrate on the turnbuckles, but Sean did the whole hold on to the rope, flip back up spot that's done like every rumble now. But back in the ring, Sean hops in and throws out Davey. I just, I remember watching this VHS and that spot fucking shattered my mind. <laughs> you talking about skinning the cat? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Well, he skinned the cat after he did the little dangle with his feet with the ropes which is like the whole signature of it and they got a really great camera angle of him yeah. with the one foot and then the other one just barely not touching and then he was able to skin the cat with not having to push off with both feet from the ground and then knocking Davy boy off the top turnbuckle over the top rope i remember seeing this as a replay on like monday night raw because this is about when we got direct tv and I go, oh, shit, wrestling. I remember this being awesome like two years ago and it not being on after Sunday church and just losing my damn mind. And th th this is the thing that hooked me. And I, it was, you know, Davey Boy going over and then Sean being victorious and uh, one of the best rumbles of all time. And aside from the SummerSlam 92, this really feels like pretty much the closest he got to the WWF main event. Yeah, and I think it was kind of this mixed with the next few months that showed that, like, they're not going to put him in the main event. Mm. You know, like, he's going to start hovering around the mid card. He's losing to King Kong Bundy for some reason. He's losing to Sean on TV and, and house shows. But at WrestleMania 11, April 2nd, 95, they kind of, like, did a pivot, and they put Davey and Lex Luger together when the Allied Powers, they were called, uh, beat the Blue Twins. Hell yeah, the Allied Powers. That's all I wanted to talk about with Lex Luger <laughs> when he did virtual gimmick table stuff was the Allied Powers because I love that shit. Me too. I thought it was cool. I like two just like jacked up dudes being tag team partners and Davey Boy was cool as shit. And like I always wanted to like look like Lex Luger and oh, that was the coolest fucking thing ever. And I, I loved it when they almost won the tag team belts against Yokozuna and Owen Hart. And yes. Just so much fun, so cool, so great. Uh, wish we got would have got more of it. And actually, Lex talks very highly about Davey just being an awesome dude. And I think they might have done like some UK dates together and like talk about how like the Allied Powers were very over in the UK, mostly because of Davey's overness in the UK. Like Lex is like, man, this is great. I feel like a rock star standing next <laughs> to you. <laughs> so yeah, just real super cool. Uh, wish they had a little more time with that, but you know, Lex has got to be Lex. Yeah, this is uh, such a fun tag team. You have Lex with the look, the charisma. You have Davy with the look, the charisma, and it feels like another moment in Davy's career where, like, fuck, maybe, maybe this is gonna be like a big cool thing. But 
Uh, following SummerSlam 95, uh, Lex dipped to go be on the first WCW Nitro. So it was uh, back to singles wrestling for Davey Boy Smith. Yeah, but not before he did the big turn with my boy Kevin Nash <laughs> and, and Men on a Mission. I, I vividly remember this where I'm trying to remember all the steps to it, but it was basically Diesel needed a tag partner. David Boy just lost his tag partner, so he stepped up and was, I'll be your tag partner. And the second that Kevin Nestron is back on Davey, he got clotheslined right in the back. And it was probably like the first time in wrestling. Because like I'd seen wrestling and I'd seen good guys, bad guys, but I never had watched somebody turn heel on television. Like there are a lot of instances because like wrestling in my early age is very sporadic because like I said, it was a syndicated show that was on some weeks, but not other weeks. So there'd be like weeks where like, oh, Macho Man's a good guy. And then all of a sudden, like the shows wouldn't air for months. And all of a sudden, Macho Man's a bad guy. I'm like, oh, well, he's bad now. But I never saw the moment that caused him to be the bad guy. Well, this is like the first time I saw somebody like become the bad guy and i was blown away hook line sinker i'm like david boy how could you how could you turn your back on kevin nash he's the coolest guy in the room how could you do that how could you do that to big day cool like i was so so upset so hooked all the way 100 it was like my first time seeing a heel turn and it was like david boy smith turning on big daddy cool diesel Bulldog lost a title shot to Diesel at In Your House 4. Uh, I think Brett shows up and interferes. That's that match. At December's In Your House 5, we got a little uh, SummerSlam 92 rematch between Brett and Davey, with, uh, this time with the world title on the line, but this time Brett wins. Uh, also a fun match. Oh, very fun match and bloody as fucking hell. This is a match that all of my friends, when I started to really get into wrestling and recording all the pay-per-views and, and like really, really, really loving wrestling. And then people talk, telling me in school, like, it's fake, it's bullshit, you should hate it. And I remember showing them this particular match, just in your house from December. And they're like, oh, the blood's not real. And so then I'm like, oh, it's not real, is it? And I showed them this match and Brett is just bleeding. <laughs> all over the place i'm like real fake right and i'll never forget my buddy mike osbacher just shut the fuck up like this match just shut him up and he i never heard him complain about how wrestling's fake ever again (laughs) i think that'd be the one thing that i would tell brett but then of course brett would write numerous books and podcasts about how he changed people's minds about wrestling being fake and real and use my story as an example of that so that's why i can never tell him that March of 96, Davey started tagging with Owen. So getting back to Old Faithful, you know, Davey power wrestles. Owen's in dynamite spot. I always love the flippy guy, power guy combo. May, Davey had a little feud with Shawn Michaels for the WWF title. And this feud is revolving around Shawn trying to get with Davey's wife. So it's like kind of uncomfortable for everyone involved. That's why I'm a Shawn guy right well, there. I- <laughs> Well, but the thing is, though, this was like Davy's idea from you hear all the Bruce Pritchard podcasts like this was like Davy's idea. And then they got uncomfortable with it and they got mad that they were doing it. Yeah. So it, I, th- it, I think it was, it was mostly the hearts that hate. like Owen hated it. I think probably Brett. But I yeah, I remember this whole feud and it's so WWF like 1995, 1996 that like this is the story we're telling when we could be telling the story of like how. Davey's been wronged and screwed over in the WWF for years. He's been in Brett's shadow for so long. 
And then the one time that he was going to have an opportunity, Sean was in a Royal Rumble match and hit me from behind. Yeah. They played my music, they rang the bell, and he hit me from behind. And then you could have Sean come back and be like, you, you hit my friend from behind, Kevin Nash, and you stabbed him in the back. And he goes, well, he was going to stab me in the back eventually. He could have got even more real stuff. Like, he would have stabbed me in the back in the locker room in front of everybody and gone to Vince. Mm. So he would, he you could have done all kinds of cool, really cool, layered, realistic stuff that was just right there. But no, like, he hit my wife. By- <laughs> I, I almost killed a man for doing that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's, what, that's what we went to as opposed to this whole thing of these two guys career has just kind of been in orbit with one another and and now we find ourselves in this situation but i think this is they also wrestled on the the charleston pay-per-view where the lights went out yeah and they wrestled in the dark and then they had to come back and do the match like on a tuesday i was one of those viewers that was freaking out about it this is before twitter so imagine you're watching a pay-per-view that you basically did chores for an entire entire week or two weeks to pay for this pay-per-view luckily they're only $14.99 and here I am I gave my parents some money hit order on the direct tv remote you're sitting there watching the pay-per-view and then it goes black and you're getting no fucking explanation whatsoever (laughs) and you're taking over the living room tv and your parents are like mad at you because you're doing that anyways and now you're just staring at a blank screen waiting for wrestling to come on and like you're trying to justify them not to change the channel because it could come on any minute and you don't know what's going on. You're not getting any updates. It's not like you have a smartphone that's going to tell you that the power is out and it's going to be on shortly or you can watch it on this streaming platform or anything. You have no fucking idea. It's an experience that nobody will ever understand today, especially Tyler. And fuck you for that. <laughs> now, I've been disappointed by the WWE many times. <laughs> okay, all right. Fair, fair. But at least you have Twitter to check and see if you're that's right true. or not or what's going that's on. That's true, that's fair. You have Twitter to, to confirm your bias. After Davey took a loss to Sean at King of the Ring in June, they'd really run with the Owen-Davey combo, giving them a title win at In Your House 10 when they beat the Smoking Guns. While they were tag champs, WWF started the European title, having a tournament where Davey and Owen made it to the finals on Raw with uh, Davey winning. Davey and Owen held off Vader and Mankind at WrestleMania 13, and after a long-ass eight-month run with the belts, they finally dropped them to uh, HBK and Stone Cold on Raw, May 26, 97, who then vacated the titles because they weren't a tag team. By now, you know, WrestleMania 13 happened. We are balls deep in the Austin Brett feud, and that leads to the formation of the Hills in America Faces in Canada Heart Foundation, which Davey, an Englishman, <laughs> joined and is just kind of like, UK's cool too, right guys? 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 And that would take us to like one of the most unique wrestling environments ever at Canadian Stampede, July 6, 97. Uh, there, Owen, Brett, Pillman, Anvil, Davey, be LOD, Shamrock, Gold Dust, and Stone Cold. I know we touched on this last season with Pillman way back when we did Owen, but this is just like the funnest, coolest shit. Yep, and the, at the Saddle Dome, around, I believe around the Stampede. And if you like wrestling around the Calgary Stampede, make sure you check out AW House Rules. <laughs> July 15th. 
Tickets are available now. Get them. They are available uh, wherever tickets are sold for the Saddle Dome Show. Get them because they'll be the hottest ticket in town. When the Calgary Stampede and wrestling returns to the Saddle Dome during the Calgary Stampede. AEW House what the fuck, Nick? You didn't give me uh, the memo on the ad read we had coming in there. I didn't even know we got sponsored. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, this is going to date the fuck out of this episode. But uh, good, jo- good job on uh, Friday. On Friday, you really got up for that choke slam. The funniest thing is the way they f- shot it on TV. They came back from commercial, and all you saw was Mark Briscoe. And I was like, man, I hope Jake doesn't have to wrestle Mark Briscoe and get fucking murdered. And then they pan out to the ring, and I was like, no! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the funny thing is about that choke slam, like, I I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and jump as high as I can because it's TV. So I jumped as high as I did, and Satnam, who is a legitimate giant, had the hold of my neck, and I jump, and I kept on going. (laughs) <laughs> it's, the, it's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me before entire life. You, you, like, you jump as high as you can and normally you go down I've never jumped as high as I can and I still start ascending like I have like <laughs> go go gadget legs and, like, I'm still going up and <laughs> yeah you got way up there it looked, it, looked, it looked awesome that was like that's a great choke slap yeah uh, my neck sure feels like right now, so <laughs> my, my, head, my head definitely bounced like a basketball Okay, so after Canadian Stampede, Bulldog broke off to feud with Shamrock over the European title, defending it successfully at SummerSlam 97. Bulldog eventually lost the European championship to Shawn Michaels at a British pay-per-view one night only. And this is kind of a fucked up story. So (laughs) Davey, first of all, always wins in England. That's why he's there. So he was booked to win in England already. He always wins in England. So he had the confidence to dedicate this match to his sick and dying sister. However, Shawn Michaels convinced Vince McMahon to flip the decision and let uh, Shawn win that night. And Vince deciding he would rather fuck over a cancer patient than deal with one of 90s Shawn's full-blown fucking temper tantrums. Vince let it HBK win and... Yeah, pretty crazy after the match. Fans lost their goddamn shit, threw trash in the ring. Yeah, and then Triple H had this whole press conference where he said, you know, if he, if he would have won, it would have finished the story. <laughs> and we don't finish stories here in the WWE. They continue onward. So we know what's best as far as a storytelling narrative. Yeah, I, I think Sean would maybe look back at it and be like, yeah, I might have been a dick for that. But then he'd probably stick with his guns like, but man, people really fucking hated me, though. I'm the biggest <laughs> heel in the UK now. So I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe tell Davey, like, hey, you're not going over. Don't dedicate it to your die- sick and dying <laughs> sister. But at the same time, too, you might have told Davey, and Davey's like, oh, this will really piss him oh, off. Yeah, <laughs> fucking 40 chess. Yeah, yeah like, so who knows? Who knows? All right, so then we get to the Survivor Series of 1997, and as Tyler documented on our Patreon, the night of the Montreal fuck job. Mm-hmm. So earlier in the night, Davey won a match as part of Team Canada against, I believe, Mero, Vader, Blackman, and uh, Golddust. Uh, it says Mello. I, my, my shit just auto-corrects to LaMelo Ball now. Then comes the Sean and Brett match, the screw job, and Davey leaving the company once again, but this time out of protest. It's just crazy to quit your job over such an obvious work. 
Davey once again left the WWF and once again joined the WCW. On January 26, 1998, Davey would have a match on Nitro, beating Steve Mongo McMichael, and none of this run is Davey at his best. This is puffy HGH Davey, he's, he's slower, he's, you know, battled drugs for a minute now, and shit's clearly catching up to him at this point. You know, he cuts that, like, brutal, sad promo on Alex Wright that they just, they shouldn't have fucking, that tape should have been burned. And... If this is your first or last impression of the British Bulldog, just know, like, Davey's better than this. Yeah, Davey at this time. Ooh, I remember, remember seeing him in WCW, and that didn't fit at all. I always thought it was like, oh, they don't know how to book the Bulldog in WCW. No, the Bulldog didn't know he was booked in WCW. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the problem. Yeah, he's not great. He just always felt like he was sleepwalking through all this. Yeah. And also, too, like, he it was just, it wasn't good, man. And, I, and he wasn't good on the WCW video game either. So even, like, the video <laughs> game developers didn't know it. Like, real bummer of a fucking time. Just like his last WCW stint, Davey shows up, he does some TVs, and then it's right into Super Brawl. This time, number seven, where he'd beat uh, Mongo. Davey would tag with former WWF co-worker Jim Neidhart. He'd have matches against former WWF co-worker Kurt Henning, former WWF co-worker Brian Adams, former WWF co-worker Barbarian, and former WWF co-worker Wrath, a.k.a. Adam Bomb. Again, this is not Davey at his best. You know, he has his struggles out of the ring, but then come the injuries. First, he has a knee injury in April. He's out about a month, but, you know, no big deal, nothing major. Davey's a tough guy. He's right back in there. But then we get to Fall Brawl 98, September 13th, and this would be a night that would change Davey's life, if not play a major role in shortening it. Anvil and Davey were tagging against Alex Wright and Disco Inferno when Davey took two awkward, full-blown contact bumps on a trapdoor that was set up for Ultimate Warrior's main event entrance for the War Games match later that night. A uh, trapdoor that WCW allegedly didn't warn Davey about, which is why he took the bumps on it in the first place. He didn't know it was there. It's two rings set up for War Game. There's no fucking reason to even have a match in the ring with the trapdoor. It's just all of this could have been avoided. But hitting the door... That led to a spinal fracture, which would most certainly not be the end of the story. You know, Davey's a tough bitch. He would wrestle on for another month, having his last WCW match against former WWF co-worker Ming, October 20th, 1998, because Davey clearly needed a break. While out, Davey was prescribed painkillers. They weren't working, so they upped the ante to morphine. And thus, Davey gets addicted to morphine. And we've had these talks 50 times. Wrestlers get addicted to painkillers. They become alcoholics. They make heroin out of morphine. Like, uh, morphine addiction is no good. Thank God he's not smoking weed, though. Say it every time. Yes. Could have been worse. (laughs) Yeah, he would have popped for like a weed test and we would have had to suspend him for six weeks and, <laughs> and, and get him clean off the weed and everything like that. Like we, we'd have to go through all those steps. So thankfully he didn't go down that road of smoking weed. <laughs> As Davey slid further into morphine addiction, his wife Diana 
tried to give him a wake-up call when she took 100 Xanax in front of him, saying, this is what you do to our family. And seeing this, Davy was too fucked up on morphine to even, like, try to help her. She died four times on the way to the hospital, but she was eventually okay. But that did lead to Davy going to rehab on New Year's Day of 99. And kind of gets worse from here. So after about five weeks in rehab, Davy goes through just a brutal stretch family-wise. His sister dies at 27, so he goes back to England for the funeral. Comes back, he's in rehab for like maybe two days. Davy gets a call that his mom is terribly sick. He heads to England on Friday, and his mom passes away on Saturday. So Davy's back off the wagon to cope with all of this, you know, not the proper way to deal with your problems, but this is how he dealt with it. On top of all of this, Davy had been going through excruciating pain, which the rehab center, you know, they just thought it was withdrawals. And while that surely played a role in it, it was definitely not the reason. After an MRI, it was found that Davy not only had a fractured spine, he had a staph infection that was eating away at his spine. Not a broken leg, not a torn ACL, not even a cracked skull. An infection was eating his spine. So Davy was likely going to die. At best, they thought he'd be paralyzed. And during his six-month stay in the hospital, Davy, from day one, was put on a morphine drip. And just to make things better, while in the hospital, Davy got a FedEx from WCW informing him that his contract had been terminated. Least you think that Vince is the only shitbag wrestling promoter in the industry. I wonder if they included the black trash bag removal of the things from his locker also. Is that just a Vince staple? (laughs) Davey would miss the back part of 98 and a huge chunk of 99 dealing with this personal hell. And for a guy that was supposed to die, for a guy who was supposed to never walk again, he'd be back in pro wrestling September of 99. Now it's smack dab in the middle of the Attitude Era. Black Jeans Davey made his way back to the WWF, rolling in and taking the hardcore title away from Big Boss Man September 9th, 99 on SmackDown after accepting an open challenge from the Boss Man who put in a lot of, like, dog puns. He gets a nice little comeback pop. It, like, takes the crowd a second. They, like, hear the music. It's a little different. It's, like, remixed. He walks out to the ring and just slowly they're like, oh, fuck, that's the British Bulldog. And like, it's like the weirdest crowd reaction, but it's like a big one. And yeah, it was very odd because you're like, oh, shit, the guy who was the zombie in WCW, like he's coming (laughs) out here now. I'm sure most wrestling fans just out of sight, out of mind. But also someone like Davey, you're probably thinking like, oh, we don't even know if he's alive anymore after going through all those things, let alone wrestling and coming out and challenging somebody for a title here on WWF programming. Did you guys feel like, because it definitely looked like he was pretty out of place at this time in the WWF. Like they kind of reworked the, the look didn't do much to stand out at that time to me as someone watching it back. How did you guys feel watching it like real time? All the old guys who came back for the Attitude Era, they were all out of place. Like, even Vader, even Warrior, who, uh, he came back a little before it. Like, it was always, like, fucking weird to see him with the new people. Yeah, and I guess he's wrestling in jeans because it's the Attitude Era. Like, the fancy spandex isn't going to get over in his mind. But to me, like, nice Union Jack, long tights. 
you know, with tassels, like that would have been fine because it's the yeah. fucking British bulldog. Now, what, I mean, what was he going to go out there with? I get he's not going to wear trunks anymore. Like that's out of the question. But putting him in jeans is a little weird. Like maybe, maybe bikers because, you know, like people are going to start wearing bikers here in a year or two. That would have been ahead of its time. But yeah, like the gear I think was trying to make him fit more, but it's just, it's weird. I think he would have been fine if if we weren't all scratching our heads like, man, it must be really hard for him to move in those jeans. Mm. Like we, had, we hadn't had the trailblazer that is Orange Cassidy to let us know that sometimes denim is the most nimble of fabrics. So I, I think that was probably the most difficult thing to get over with him coming back. Davey going back to WWF was not a decision that turned him face with the uh, Hart family. We're not that far removed from the screw job, the very same screw job that Davey left for in the first place, and we're about six months away from Owen's death. So the Hart family wounds are still very open, they're still very painful, but I guess, you know, Davey's got to eat. Right away, he's tossed into the six-pack challenge match at 99 Unforgiven, taking on Kane, Big Show, Rock, Mankind, and the eventual winner, Triple H. He beat D'Lo for the European title on SmackDown October uh, 26th, and then he went on a, a you know a nice little run holding it until December when he lost it to uh, Val Venus at Armageddon 99. You can kind of see that like at first they were pumped to have Davey back. He comes straight into the main event, but then as his condition worsens, his addiction becomes more apparent. WWF starts like sliding him down the card into a lesser role. They thought the European title win would be like exciting for him and, you know, get him together. And then we get to February 21st, 2000. There's about a two and a half month gap in Davey's employment history because he's not doing good. And basically, WWF sits him down and says, you go to rehab or you get out. When you come back from rehab, you have a job here, but you have to go. I don't mean rehab next week when your dates are up. Airport right now. (laughs) So they ship Davey off to rehab. And for that time, with the amount of shit that was going on with wrestlers backstage in the WWF, for them to put their foot down like that, holy shit. (sighs) Yeah. So he's back May 6, 2000 for Insurrection to take on Crash for the hardcore title in London, England. And it's just, you know, fingers fucking crossed that this is day one of his comeback story, but uh, it's not the case. He'd win the belt, but he seemed to drop it back off the Crash May 9th. He'd do a SmackDown, he'd do a Heat, he'd do a Jacked before doing his last TV match with WWF when he faced Eddie Guerrero May 23rd, 2000 for the European title. And it ended in like a double DQ, I think. He was given like one last chance to kind of prove himself at a house show in Calgary, May 27th. But he showed up in not good shape. He was facing Steve Blackman and Steve said that like he wrapped up the match as soon as he fucking could because he was just like legit scared that Davey was going to accidentally, you know, hurt him. And from there, that was it. WWF and Davey decided the best course of action would be if Davey stepped away from the business. And as bad as wrestling was for Davey, his personal life is uh, worse. So in 2000, he's arrested for allegedly threatening to kill Diana and her sister. And Diana would divorce Davey that year. But wrestling-wise, Davey goes radio silent until 2002. 
Davey's considering coming out of retirement. His son Harry's getting into the business. And Davey had apparently been doing much better. He's happier. He's healthier. He's cleaner than he'd been in years. He's working out with Harry. Like, it seemed like it was finally going to fucking come together for him. Davey did two matches, May 10th and 11th, tagging with first Harry and then Harry and Zach Mercury in Manitoba, Canada. I've wrestled Harry before, and Harry, I always say, is the smoothest person I've ever been in the ring with. Like, he was always in the absolute right position every single moment, every single second. And if Davey was anything like that at all, I see why people love wrestling him so much. And like Harry, if you've ever, if you guys have ever met him before, and, and if you ever see him at a convention or a wrestling show, and you go to his gaming table, you you immediately recognize how nice and polite and welcoming he is, and just what an honest and cool dude he is. And for him to grow up in some of this chaos here is just amazing to me. But then it also kind of explains like how he could be around Teddy as much as he <laughs> he has been over the years and just been like, well, it's just Ted. Like, <laughs> it's like, well, I grew up in chaos. So, you know, Ted, Ted's kind of on par with that. But yeah, Harry's just absolutely incredible. And he really over his career has honored his father in the good parts of his father, for sure especially like that lovable person and also just being a just amazing wrestler. I, I really feel like we have not seen the best of Harry Smith. If he's ever put in the right situation at the right time, like the world will really know how good he is. Like I said, he's hands down one of the best people I've ever been in the ring with. And got to believe that some of that was passed down by, by Davey a little bit, you know, or osmosis wise or whatever. So he definitely, is a shining reflection upon that of the good parts of Davey. So any hopes of a British Bulldog comeback would uh, tragically be ended a week after his last match on May 18th, 2002. Davey suffered a heart attack, passing away way too young at the age of 39. Forensic scientist uh, Julie Evans said that Although she did find steroids and painkillers in Smith's system, it wasn't at a life-threatening level. Like, this was not an OD. She said that Davey died of uh, natural causes associated with an enlarged heart. But, you know, steroids do give you an enlarged heart, so it's like chicken-egg kind of thing. But the worst part about this, it looked like Davey was mostly clean. You know, steroids are what they are in wrestling and professional sports in general. But it looked like Davey was, like, riding the ship. It was just... Which is too late. There's a little post-death drama here. Davy's dad claimed that he was murdered, but that seemed to be more of like a grieving dad trying to make sense out of the obviously the worst thing you can that can happen to you as a parent. And nothing really ever came from any investigation or anything like that. Ultimate Warrior would hop on his blog to be an absolute prick per use <laughs> about uh Davy's death, so let's name an award after him. And then the hardest part is, yeah, Davey left behind two kids. So we have Georgia that seems to keep her dad's brand, memory, legacy alive. Um, she's running the verified Instagram, the British Bulldog, WWE, all spelt normal. She seems to keep it like pretty active, pictures, video. So, you know, check that out. And then, you know, as we mentioned, as Jake just said, you know, Harry, a.k.a. Uh, Davey Boy Smith Jr. sometimes, great, talented uh, indie wrestler. 
On a brighter note, Davey was very deservingly put in the 2020 WWE Hall of Fame. So as someone that wasn't watching during really any of his run, it's been fun to go back and see some of the great moments that are always talked about whenever anyone brings up wrestling during WWF specifically from like the SummerSlam 92 match, a lot of the stuff revolving around the Hart Foundation. And it's been said many times over, but Davey Boy Smith, very talented wrestler that never made it to the main event as a singles competitor, even though he came so close a couple of times. And it's, it's almost a lesson in a way that shows you all of the things that have to not go wrong for you to make it to the main event. He was there, he was close, he had heat behind him a few times, but whether it was politics or his personal demons or injury, bad luck, Davy Boy Smith never got to the pinnacle when he definitely had the, the talent to back it up. And I'm glad that he's got a spot in the Hall of Fame because while that is made up and it resides mostly in Vince McMahon's mind, it is a little bit of a, uh, an acknowledgement of all the hard work that he put in and how great of a wrestler he was. Yeah, Davey's one of those wrestlers that when I see a match, I see a picture, it gives me that like warm, nostalgic feeling. He was such a just deep part of my wrestling childhood when I was, you know, young, dumb Mark. I, I love the British Bulldog. His Attitude Era comeback was, you know, kind of a swing and a miss, but then you learn what he was actually going through. You learn about the back injury and, you know, it all kind of makes sense. And bouncing off what Tyler said, for a guy who reached the heights he did, he's still like this massive what-if story, like three times over. He was good in the ring. He had the look. He had the charisma, the credibility to just be like a major superstar. And especially in 92, when the WWE like de desperately was trying to fill that role. But despite that, like he still had an amazing career. I think he'll be remembered as an international megastar he was a powerhouse in the ring he was revolutionary in the ring and um he's a guy who gave it all for pro wrestling yeah as nick just said he was described him as a powerhouse a revolutionary when it comes to the high spots like that's you look at somebody like uh a jake something who does topes and then yokes people up from the ground i mean like we're just now getting to the type of wrestler that davy boy was decades ago. We're just now seeing wrestlers like that and like someone like a Keith Lee and a multitude of other wrestlers that you can see on all the national promotions, like a very agile but strong individual. So he was extremely revolutionary in that way. But personally, he was a part of just about every wrestling memory I have. As a child, uh, in, in the mix of all of the Hulkamania and wrestling magazines and VHS tapes that I got over the years, you know, the British Bulldog was always there. And, and hearing that the British Bulldog entrance music hitting and then him coming down in the ring with the big Union Jack cape, I vividly remember that on the syndicated show that I would see on Sunday. And then I, when I got back into it, as I described in 1995, I saw Shawn Michaels fuck him over in the Royal Rumble, and then his heel turn. Like, you notice how much I perked up when we talked about that. And, you know, it was time with Brett before the Montreal screw job. 
and then playing him on the video game because I had so many fun memories of him in WWF, and I'm hoping his WCW video game character will be like, like good, but it never was. It could it was just garbage because of where he was in WCW, and the video game designers hated him. And then the Attitude Era, like he's wrestling The Rock and in jeans, and yeah, that's not great. But man, it's the British Bulldog. I loved him so much. And then obviously he passed, but then I got to wrestle Harry, and, and you know Harry was. I, I saw him a multitude of different times during like my years of kind of getting out into some bigger indie shows, and then obviously my filming of the Dynamite Kid documentary. Like obviously Davy came up, and there was a lot of Davy discussion, and I heard a lot of Davy stories over the years. So there's there's really not any part of my life that. Davy Boy Smith hasn't touched as far as professional wrestling goes. I mean, that's how interwove through my fandom that he really is. So I'm glad we took the time out of, out of our days to talk about him, and I'm glad that you, the listeners of Ted Bell Pod, took the time out of your day to listen about his career. All right, that is the Great British Bulldogs, Ted Bell Pod. Thanks for everyone hopping on the Patreon, listening to the episodes. If you uh, can't help us, tell a friend. Jake, Tyler. Leave a review, please, 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 please. Those reviews really, really help. Leave a review wherever you can. Also, anytime you can engage with us on social media, tweet out about 10 Pod. Let people know we're over here doing this, uh, especially new Patreon episodes, especially new episodes that are coming out. Uh, we're very active that way. Nick is always trying to find some sort of wrestling meme that he could post about. He doesn't want to do it on his personal because he's afraid people are going to make fun of him because <laughs> he's a big Hollywood guy now. <laughs> and, you know, wrestling isn't cool. But Nicholas is cool because he likes wrestling and he's cool just like you. So make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at 10 the number bell pod. And if you guys want to drop us anything through our social media channels or comment on patreon put comment on any post anywhere let us know what you want to see like what other things would you be interested in us producing what things have you seen in the past that you like and yeah we really appreciate all the the feedback that everybody's been given we really appreciate the support god what football product is out if you see <laughs> jake at a show give him a uh what's out fuck a pack of nfl impeccable if it just go fucking nuts <laughs> go to impeccable but if you want to go in the lower end clearly donorous hobby boxes are a third of the prices they were last year and it's a wonderful quality product so clearly donorous will be just fine yeah the fucking price drops been great but uh all right bye everyone canada canada <laughs> You're getting, you're getting real British, Nick. <laughs> <laughs>